there's this guy named Jerry, and he's a somewhat distant relative who's really into genealogy and tracing our family tree. And I was talking to him last week, and he told me about this eccentric relative of ours who lived around Castlewood about 100 years ago. The dude was really superstitious. He didn't want people taking photographs of him, different quirky things like that. And the guy told his family that when he died, he didn't want them to put up a headstone for him because he didn't want just general people stumbling upon it knowing where he's laid. So since he died, his family has handed down by word of mouth the knowledge of where this guy is buried. So if you've ever heard that phrase, you know, so-and-so knows where the bodies are buried, this guy's descendants literally two or three at a time know where his body is buried. And it just gets passed down person to person to person by generation. But really, we come to the gospel, we come to faith in a similar way by someone passing it on down the line. So I have a question. Who originally taught you about Jesus? You know, who passed that down to you? Just something to think about as we proceed, but stop me if you've heard this one before. A king, an orphan, a regular guy, and an angry man enter the Bible. All right, there's no punchline. That is literally the book of Esther. All right? There are four people who have very little in common who typically wouldn't be together and they are living separate lives, but there is a fifth person in action here, and he has intertwined their lives in a way to bring them together on purpose and for a purpose. So as we finish this series on Esther this week, we want to look at how God has worked in these four lives to get these people where they need to be for this exact moment in time. Not just so we are impressed by God, although we should be, but because he does exactly that for you and I. And we've been referring over to Romans 8.28 throughout this series, and I want to look at it one more time today. It tells us this, and we know that all things, which things, the good or the bad? All things, right? All things work together for good to those who love God to those who are the called according to his purpose. See, sometimes we want God to show up in a particular way that we've already decided is best. And when he shows up in a different way than how we wanted, we can dismiss his involvement. And we've been studying Esther and asking the question, where is God? And we often want God to show up you know, in a, in a cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night, the mighty whirlwind, all those ways, right? When a loved one gets a medical diagnosis that, that we don't like, okay, we want God to eliminate that element from their body and just banish it. God can. I've known that to happen. Probably some of you have as well. And, and when that happens, we, we say, yes, there's God. There's God working, and it's so exciting. But sometimes... We get the medical diagnosis we didn't want. And God still shows up through the knowledge and abilities of a doctor. Right? They're all different ways. And that causes us 
to look at our lives and think we don't always see God at work. But we look at Esther, which again is the only book in the Bible that never mentions God by name. And still, in the story, it's the story of how God works in the lives of Esther and those around her. And we've looked at Xerxes and Mordecai and Haman and Esther as individuals. So briefly, let's kind of go through uh, the story kind of in order. And as we look at all things that happen in here, what happens with these people, we're going to ask, is this good or is it bad? Is this a good thing or a bad thing? So for instance, Esther was an orphan and we all look at that and we see that Esther losing her parents at a young age. We can all agree that's a bad thing, right? But then Mordecai comes along and adopts her and makes her part of his family. And that's a good thing. Years later, Xerxes comes to power. One day, he gets mad at his queen. And he passes a law saying she's not queen anymore. Is that good or bad? Throwing away your marriage, that's bad, right? Because Xerxes now needs a new queen, he searches for a new queen and he ends up selecting Esther, good or bad? That's good, right? We want Esther, yay Esther. But some men plan to assassinate Xerxes. But Mordecai reports it and that attempt is stopped. Good or bad? Good that he reports it, bad that they were wanting to kill the king, right? But Xerxes promotes a fella by the name of Haman. And everyone except Mordecai bows to him. So Haman gets angry and talks Xerxes into passing a law declaring that all the Jews be killed. Good or bad? That's the worst, right? So, but this bad event, as bad as it is, prompts a reaction from Mordecai and then Esther. And we're going to see today that God uses all the good and all the bad that has happened so far to do something that is truly miraculous and amazing. So whether the things that happen in your life are good or bad is not nearly as important as where those events get you to in life. So Mordecai comes along and he appeals to Esther to influence the king to intercede for their people because she is in a position as queen to have influence over the king. And he tells her in Esther 4.14, maybe you have come to your royal position for just such a time as this. So for Mordecai, that is a statement of faith. For Esther, though, that's a call to action. And so after a three-day fast where Esther is, is fasting and praying, Esther heads to go talk to the king. But before we get to what happens next, does this seem familiar? Is this your life? You, know, you have some good and you have some bad, and then you spend a lot of time deciding, you know, what do I do with my hands? Do I put them in my pockets? Do I put them in front of me? There's some good, there's some bad, and a whole lot of uncertainty. Sometimes we face uncertainty in our own lives, and we think, if I just knew God's plan, all of it, his exact plan for my life, it would be so easy to follow his will. So we look at Esther, and she doesn't know how God is going to work. All she can do is take that first step. 
But let me, let me show you what happens when God does tell someone exactly what to do. So if you go look in the book of Acts, Christianity starts growing at a very rapid pace. And a lot of the religious leaders of the day are not happy about it because that means less power, less prestige for them. One of them is a guy named Saul or Paul. And one day, Saul is headed to Damascus. And, and he is going there to arrest and punish Christians that are in that city. Is that good or bad? That's bad, right? So, but along the way, Jesus appears to Saul in this brilliant light. And he says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And in that moment, in that interaction, Saul trusts in Christ. So God opens his eyes in a spiritual sense, but he's blinded in a very physical sense. And then in Acts chapter 9, verse 10, it tells us this. In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. Now, you could not get a more precise word from God than this, right? I mean, here I am 2,000 years later, and I was able to draw a map for Ananias. I, I, I didn't say I drew it well. But, but this is like God saying, okay, you go to Richlands, to a house on Farmer Street with chickens in front, and look for a lady named Ursula, she will be whittling a duck out of a block of wood. Okay, You cannot be more clear than what God has given Ananias to do. He's given him a very clear word. So if you feel like, yes, I would definitely step out and do what God wants, but I'm just waiting on a clearer direction. Let's use Ananias as our example because it doesn't get more clear than these instructions to Ananias. And what does Ananias do? Look at the next verse. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. Ananias thinks God has gotten it wrong. He basically says, hey God, thank you for such a clear calling on my life, but I believe you've made a mistake. But anyways, God insists. And Ananias follows God's lead, and he is the guy who coaches Saul, who introduces Saul to other Christians in the area. All right? And this is the same Saul that the Holy Spirit used to give us half of the New Testament, including the verse that tells us all things work together for good. And the one that says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. I'm thankful for that one, are you? And the Iwana verse, 2 Timothy 2.15. And, and he had that pen in his hand, Saul did, because of Ananias. Ananias who didn't know the plan, who couldn't see that God was going to use Saul but knew that he had a very specific calling and a very specific purpose. Ananias, who walked by faith and not by sight. 
And he showed up because God told him to show up. He delivered the good news to Saul. And that news got delivered forward. And it got delivered forward. And it got delivered forward. Don't worry, I'm not a broken record. But it got delivered forward like that family burial ground I told you about at the beginning. For 2,000 years, it has been delivered forward because somebody told somebody who told somebody else and they passed it on down the line to somebody who passed it on to you and me. And we think all these amazing words that we hold on to in God's word as given through Paul... But if you don't have Ananias, what happens to Paul? And if you don't have Paul, you don't have much of the New Testament. But God was working all things together for good. And he sent Ananias to Straight Street, to the house of Judas, to a young convert named Saul. So if you're waiting for God to show you the whole plan you are missing out on some great opportunities to serve God in some amazing ways in your life. But Esther took that first step of faith, and she literally put her life in God's hands. All right, And that takes us to Esther 5.1. It tells us, On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court in the palace in front of the king's hall. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the hall facing the entrance. When he saw Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased with her and held out to her the gold scepter that was in his hand. So Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. Then the king asked, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be given to you. So, you know, in the New Testament, the king of kings told us, ask and you will receive. And here comes Esther, and she happens to be adored by the king And he says, ask me for whatever you want to ask me. And I wonder, is there something in your life that you're holding on to yourself when you should be approaching the throne of the king? Because guess what? The king of heaven adores you just like King Xerxes adored Esther. So here Esther is, already in the king's presence, already with the king's favor, and he asks her, What can I do for you? And she says, tomorrow, could I have a dinner with you and Haman? But is that really what she wanted to accomplish? No, she wanted, uh, you know, her people not to be killed. But she's been fasting and praying for three days. And typically we would think, you know, I have the attention of the king, so I'm going to let him know what's on my mind. I'm going to let him know what I'm concerned about. So we can safely say that this is guidance provided by God during her time of prayer and fasting. So the question is, why do you suppose God led her this way? What we can be sure of is that God is working all things together for what? For good. All right. So we'll see what God's working on in a minute. But first, let's pick up on this dude named Haman. We talked a few weeks ago about Haman leaving the palace after he's invited to dine with Esther and Xerxes. And he sees Mordecai on his way out, and that spoils his mood because he can't stand Mordecai. So he goes home 
and complains about it to his wife and his friends. Here's the deal. You're not going to like everybody. And that's okay because we all have differences that are going to make us likable to some people and intolerable to others. And it would have been fine if Haman said, you know that Mordecai, he is just not my cup of tea. He is not somebody that I think I'm going to be best friends with. That would be just fine. But he let it turn into something else. He let it turn into a wicked obsession. And let's look in chapter 5 at what Haman does. Verse 14, it says, His wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Have a pole set up, reaching to a height of 50 cubits, and ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai impaled on it. Then go with, the queen, go with the king to the banquet and enjoy yourself. This suggestion delighted Haman, and he had the pole set up. So Haman sets up a pole 50 cubits high. In American, that's about 75 feet. That's about from me to the back row, standing straight up. So he has this 75-foot pole set up. And let me just say, if I wanted to see someone impaled, and I don't, I just want to make that clear, but if I did, four or five feet seems like it would probably do the trick, right? I mean, that, that's really all that you would need. But Haman, he doesn't just want Mordecai out of the way. He wants to make a spectacle out of Mordecai. So we asked a minute ago, after three days of fasting and praying, why didn't Esther just ask for what she wanted that first time when she approached the, the king? The reason is because God had a plan for Xerxes. Esther 6.1, it tells us, That night the king could not sleep, so he ordered the book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought in and read to him. So here's the deal, okay? It's Esther and Mordecai and the rest of God's people who are in peril here, right? So you would think that they would be the ones tossing and turning and restless all night. But the Bible doesn't say they had any trouble sleeping. I guess that they knew from their fasting and their praying that God's already got this under control. But it's the king who can't sleep. You know, when, when I have trouble sleeping, I usually maybe uh, read comic books and listen to music. I'm sure you have your own thing that you do when you can't sleep, right? Xerxes has someone come along and read to him from public records, which seems like it would be fairly good at putting someone to sleep. Um, but, but what he comes across is a reminder of the time that Mordecai saved his life. So Xerxes says, oh yeah, Mordecai, what did we ever do for that guy anyways? And they look and they haven't done anything for Mordecai yet. So Xerxes goes looking for his advisors. And by this time, it's early morning. And Haman can't wait to show up and asked for Mordecai to be impaled on the pole that he set up, on his 75-foot pole. So Xerxes waves him over, and Xerxes says, What should I do for someone I want to honor? And Haman is prideful, plus, just yesterday, the king invited him to dinner with, with Esther. Okay, So who does he think the king has in mind that he'd like to honor? himself right so he says well king I think you should put one of your robes on me I mean that person and put that person 
on one of your horses and parade him around the city and say, this is what the king likes to do for those he wishes to honor. And so, you know, I think that's what you should do, king. All right, so King Xerxes tells him this in, in chapter 6, verse 10. Go at once, the king commanded Haman, get the robe and the horse and do just as you have suggested. At this point, Haman's probably really excited. And then he says, for Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate, do not neglect, do not neglect anything you have recommended. Ever had something turn out very differently than you expected? Years ago, I was involved in, uh, in working with the youth at our previous church. One of the women in our church had the same first name as one of the older girls in their youth group. And this isn't their actual name. I'm going to change it to protect the innocent or what have you. But we're going to call them Susie and Susie for now. Okay. So grown-up Susie hosted our youth for a dinner party one day. You know, we all got together, ate at her house. Well, younger Susie didn't have the best home life. She got involved in some bad things um, and got arrested a few days after we'd had dinner at grown-up Susie's house. Well, my wife is very thoughtful, so she bought a card for us to sign for grown-up Susie to thank her for hosting us. She wanted to do that thing where everybody signs the card, you pass it around, and, and get everyone to sign it and be thankful, okay? So she hands it to me, and she says, here, I want you to sign this card for Susie. And I didn't read the card, but I was thinking of younger Susie, and I thought this was a we still care about you even though you're in jail type of card. I don't know, does, does Hallmark even make those? And I wrote something along the lines of, we're sorry you went through this painful experience. We are praying for you. Which is very different from thank you for letting us eat in your house. Which is what I should have written. So, um, I, so I give the card back to Holly. She read what I'd written and had to go buy a new card for grown-up Susie. And that's why making assumptions is a bad idea. So here's Haman with all this hatred in his heart for Mordecai. And he has to go and parade Mordecai around the capital city and tell everyone that Mordecai is just, you know, the bee's knees. So over in Galatians, Paul a good friend of Ananias of Damascus, tells us a man reaps what he sows and the day has come for Haman to reap everything that he has sown. And, and so Haman goes to the banquet probably thinking, well, you know, this day can't get any worse than it's already been. It can and it does. So Esther finally at this dinner makes her concerns known. You know, somebody wants to kill me, my family, my entire race. And Xerxes says, wait, who would want to kill you? You've been good to me, Mordecai. He's been good to me. And, and kill your Jewish people. And so here she is, Xerxes, herself, Haman. And she says, that guy, the one right there, slumping down in his chair and trying to be invisible, He's the one who wants to kill us all. And the king is so mad about this that he goes and he just stomps out of the room. So Haman starts begging Esther to plead for his life. Esther is kind of reclining on this couch, right? And Haman falls on her begging her. 
Will you please talk to Xerxes for me and try to spare my life? About that time when Haman has fallen on her, Xerxes comes back into the room. And, and he sees this guy on top of the queen and he thinks, oh, well he is getting grabby with Esther and he doesn't like that at all. So his men capture Haman. One soldier mentions, did you know that he set up a 75-foot pole yesterday to, to uh, impale Mordecai on? Yes, right in his front yard. So Haman ends up on that 75-foot pole he'd intended for Mordecai. So even without mentioning God here in this book, we see God's child receiving glory and we see the wicked one getting the, puni- getting the punishment that he set up for Mordecai. So do you see God at work here? He's done something amazing. He is making all these pieces work together for good. But if we end here, this story still doesn't have a good ending. Because if nothing else changes, both Esther and Mordecai and all the other Jews are still scheduled to die on the day that Haman had requested. And see, the issue is the laws of the Persian Empire do not allow for even Xerxes to repeal his own law. But what you can do is make a new law. In this case, Xerxes allowed Esther to draft a new law saying that on that day, the Jews could kill anyone who attacked them and take their property. So this put fear in many of those Persians, many of them even converted to Judaism so they don't get confused as one of the enemies on that day. They want to make sure they weren't attacked. So the day comes around, the Jewish people gather in cities to defend themselves. So Mordecai is given Haman's Haman's position as second in charge. He's in charge of the royal army. And over two days, some people did try to attack the Jewish people. But over the course of that, they were wiped out. In total, they killed 75,000 of those who hated and wanted to kill them. So after those two days, they declared a day of rest and feasting. And Mordecai sent out a proclamation to all the Jewish people declaring an annual two-day celebration. Today, this still is carried on as as a celebration called the Festival of Purim. And Jewish people still celebrate, usually in March, by gathering together. They write Haman's name on the bottoms of their shoes. So as they walk around, they're kind of walking on Haman. So they gather around, they walk on Haman, um, they feast, they read the book of Esther, and celebrate what God did through Esther and Mordecai. Walking with God isn't always going to be easy. Okay, We're not going to pretend that it is. But hard times are an opportunity for you to grow and make positive decisions in your life. See, God made you with the knowledge you have and the skills you have and in the place and time where you are. And you were created for such a time as this. You know, it's horrible that Xerxes went along with Haman's law. But then there was a new law. And there may be some negatives in your life. You may feel like, you know, maybe you've done something to paint yourself into a corner. Um, A marriage may have ended. You You may be estranged from your child or your parent. 
But whatever it is, whatever those negatives are in your life, there can be a new day for you too. See, you were made on purpose for a purpose. All right? I want you to say this with me. I was made on purpose for a purpose. Make that part of your life. When you're going through difficult situations and things seem hopeless, keep that in mind. When you have an opportunity to stand up for someone or be kind to someone, remember that you are on purpose for a purpose. God has allowed whatever he allows in your life for your good and for the good of others. See, God works in the people and the circumstances of our lives. And that's why who you surround yourself with is more important than what enemies may surround you. We see this in the lives of Xerxes and Haman. Xerxes is surrounded by the wrong people who advise him to depose his queen. Then he's around Haman, who convinces him to pass a really terrible, horrible law. But then you have Esther on the other hand. She takes the advice, the advice of wise people, which repeatedly puts her where she needs to be. That's also why what you do is more important than what happens to you. Where do Haman's actions leave him? Sliding down a giant pole he set up for someone else, right? Meanwhile, Esther is faithful and brave and kind in spite of the really tough life that she's been handed. And you probably had some bad stuff happen in your life. We all do sometimes. You can use that as an excuse, and people may give you a pass on some things. Okay? They may say, uh, you know, I don't approve of what he or she is doing, but poor thing, they've had a really tough life. I can almost understand it. You've probably seen people like that and thought that, right? But if you live life with that goal, you are living the life of a victim. When you have the right to say, my circumstances do not define me, I am who God says I am, and God says I'm a victor, not a victim. And that's why I'm so thankful for my church family. You know, I'm thankful for those who pass the message down to me. Some of them are in this room today. And just know that I am truly thankful for the part you've played in my life because you are an Ananias to my life. And, and you enabled me to pass it down to another generation. That's why, folks, you should surround yourself with a church family. You need that in your life. But remember, God works in the people and the circumstances of our lives. So make sure you surround yourself with people who lift you up and make sure your actions are lifting up others. Many of us come from different backgrounds, you know, different churches or even no church, and yet God has pulled us all together from our different backgrounds to be here, to be part of this church, this body of believers. All right, God worked this together. So when we look at the story of Esther and we see what God accomplished in those lives, it truly is a celebration of salvation. And we should celebrate our own salvation as well because what is salvation? 
in order to be saved, you have to be saved from something bad to something better, right? If you're in the parking lot and no cars are coming at you and I run along and I push you out of the way, I'm not saving you from anything, am I? At the same time, if you're somewhere and a car is headed after you and I push you out of the way of that car and straight off a cliff, I still can't say that I have saved you. But if I pushed you out of the path of a car and into safety, only then can I truly say that I saved you. All right. See, God is faithful and mighty to save and that is something that is definitely worth celebrating, okay? Salvation isn't something God used to do in biblical days. You know, most of you are pretty familiar with, with Hitler and uh, his hatred of the Jewish people in the, in the last century. Hitler actually banished or banned the celebration of Purim because he was afraid that the story of Esther would inspire and embolden the Jews in Germany to stand up against them like Esther and Mordecai had back in the day. But around that same time, Russia was led by a fellow by the name of Joseph Stalin. And I, was, I was actually talking to a history teacher last week about him. Did you know that, that Joseph Stalin actually killed more Jews than Hitler? You don't hear as much about it, but he had a horrible relationship with the Jewish population. So, in 1953... On Purim, Joseph Stalin fell ill, and he was paralyzed for three days and then died. So in modern times, many Jewish people consider this divine retribution and an additional kind of Purim salvation. Now, can I say that was God in action? Not with a complete certainty, but does that definitely correspond with how the Bible shows us that God works to save his people? Seems like it does, right? And certainly the Jewish people look at it that way, and I'm not going to argue with them. All right? But as we close today, and as we finish this series, it's okay to ask the question, where is God? Because this is not a question of doubt. Okay, it can be a positive. You can say, where is God as I'm going through this difficult situation? Where is God working in my life? Who has God placed in my life for just such a time as this. We may not fully understand everything we have been through during this life, and it's okay to admit that. Okay? Some of our where is God questions may not be answered until we meet him face to face. But God is working all things together for good. And one day I believe that we will thank God for things that barely even registered with us here. One day, we'll see that things that we were sure were curses and punishments on our lives were actually some of our greatest blessings. So even when you don't feel God by your side, even when you don't understand the whys and the whats and the hows, just know that God is never missing, and where is God? He is right there with you. All right, so let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I just thank you for this opportunity to be with your people. Dear God, I just thank you for the salvation that you work in our lives 
on a daily basis. And I just thank you for the amazing things that you do to work things together for good in our lives. I thank you for these examples that we have in the Bible that you've given us that show us, you know, what you've done. And I just thank you that you're so good to us.